Good morning. Good to see you today. Let's turn our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I wanted to uh, let you know that out in the foyer, there's a couple of things, but uh, first of all, we've got a bunch more of these ultimate questions tracks. I have to say, this is my favorite track of all, of all tracks that I've, I've ever read. This is my favorite one. Um, I got a bunch of them, and uh, feel free to take them. We, uh, these, these are not only small enough and great to, to pass out to someone that uh, you're, you're hoping will come to Christ, but you could even use this as a Bible study. So it's kind of a, it brings two worlds together. It's most of the time, in my opinion, the tracks that are that are published don't have enough information in them to really introduce Christ to someone in a sufficient way. This does, and uh, but it can double as a Bible study. You know, just a friend at work. Hey, would you like to? You have questions? Hey, let's let's do this Bible study together. Go through this. It'd be a, it'd be a great option for you. And on the, and even in the back inside, we have a little sticker that says, if you have questions and would like to know more about the Bible, please contact us. So there's some contact information there as well. I just want to commend that to you. Um, as we've been studying here in 1 Timothy, we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth, right? And that means we hold high the gospel and hold it out to the, to the people in the world that have yet to learn about Christ, just like we were once lost in the world, undone, without Christ, without hope. And someone showed us the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you to stand one more time this morning, and I want to read our text. Um, we're working our way through 1 Timothy 4, 6-16. through 16. This has been quite a passage to study for me, hopefully for you as well. Very uh, revealing, very convicting, very equipping. Very uh, focusing. So let's read this together. 1 Timothy 4, 6-16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we are thankful to be here together to open Your Word. We pray that the entrance of Your words would give us light. We pray that You would give us understanding of the meaning of this text that we are going to study today. That we would be exhorted from it. That we would be taught by it. We pray that Christ would be honored and glorified in all and that we would see how You have put all things in place for Your glory and for the exaltation of Christ. And that there is a powerful, Spirit-filled mission at work in the world through the church by the Spirit of God in the power of the ascended Christ and that all who are truly in Christ are part of that. And that there is a, there is a strategic method by which you have planned and you have ordained 
for us to edify one another and to equip one another and to evangelize the lost and to exalt Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see these things, to put these things together. Spirit of God, make those connections for us. Help us not to come away from this time today simply having more intellectual information, but may we leave with a changed heart, with a spirit-given desire and resolve to, to, to live differently. Forgive us, Father. We know You do in Christ. We claim Your forgiveness because You've promised it in Christ, but we confess our failure to see these things and to live by them as You would want us to. We need Your grace. Apart from You, we can do nothing. And thank You for sending us the Holy Spirit to live in us and that You by Him would bear fruit in our lives so that our joy would be full and so that Your Father would be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The main idea of our text that we have been working through is diligently pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus. This theme comes to bear specifically in verse 6 where we see if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of faith. So there's the central idea, being a good servant of Christ Jesus. And everything else from verses 6 through 16 really explains what it means to become a good servant of Christ Jesus. explains what the marks of a good servant of Christ Jesus are. And so this text comes to us with Timothy immediately in mind. Paul's talking to Timothy because Paul sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus and told him, charged him to go there and to correct the false doctrine and to, to teach sound doctrine and to establish elders and deacons and, and so on and to set that erring church on the right course. And so let's make some connections here again with the overall theme of 1 Timothy. Becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus, that pursuit has a direct impact on the overarching goal of this letter, which is what? Do you remember? 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, right? Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay in my return, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus is part of the means that God has ordained for the church to become as a whole what He has ordained for it to be. As Timothy, as elders and deacons, as the members of Christ's body pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus, they grow in practical godliness. Remember how Timothy or Paul talked about that. Pursue godliness. Train yourself for godliness. As the, the leaders of God's church and the people of God's church train themselves for godliness, then they will more and more realize the goal of this letter. They will behave as the family of God. They will act like the church of the living God and be the pillar and the buttress of the truth in the world by their lives, by their words. And another implication from this text that we need to notice is that as we pursue these things, becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus, as, as we pursue growth and godliness, there is going to be a protection in that pursuit by God's grace from apostasy. Notice again, the very first words of, of 1 Timothy 4 in your text. The Spirit expressly say, states that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith. And he's talking, he's warning about apostasy there and encouraging Timothy to warn the people of Ephesus about apostasy. And then he explains the process of, and the pursuit of becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then at the very end of that chapter, let your eyes fall down to verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this. Or by doing so, you will what? You will save both yourself and your hearers. And it seems to me the immediate reference there is you will save yourselves by the grace of God. Not that we have any merit to save ourselves from sin, but we will be rescued from apostasy. We will continue to pursue and grow and, and, and we will see the fulfillment of the mission of this letter in our lives. And, and ultimately, there is a personal model to imitate in all of this. I want you to notice that, how, how Paul tells to Timothy, he says, pursue godliness, 
And then he says, be an example, right? We looked at that last week. Set an example for the believers. So in all of these things, the church leadership is to pursue these things and they are to be an example to the rest of the body as the body seeks to pursue these things as well. So, becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus is the central focus of this section, but it really sends out its, its implications in all directions throughout this letter. So then, what does one pursue? What does that look like? How does one pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus? And so far, we've looked at eight or four of the eight marks. Four of the eight marks. And we'll, let me just jump down here to the last page. And you can look in your outline and see the, the next two that we're going to look at today. The outline I've put in your bulletin. How does one become, or how does one pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus? Put the truth before the family of God. Verse 6, train yourself for godliness. Verse 7-10, through 10, command and teach these things. Verse 11, set an example. Verse 12, and today we'll look at the next two. Devote yourself to biblical ministry and do not neglect your spiritual gift. Let's look at these today together. Number one in your outline, devote yourself to biblical ministry. This is verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy had a very demanding task assigned to him. Just remember that for a few moments with me. Paul sent Timothy ahead to Ephesus. He couldn't come immediately. There are things that he was dealing with. And, and Timothy was assigned as a young man to go to this erring church and to correct the church. To correct different doctrine, chapter 1 tells us. To call the men of that church together in prayer and to do that in unity. To call the women to learn in submission. To affirm qualified men into the offices of elder and deacon. To warn people of apostasy. And if you think about those tasks in a church among people you're just meeting, what a task. You want to reassign leadership? Call the women to learn in submission? Tell the men to get together and pray and stop fighting? Correct some, I mean. That's all the worst stuff you could possibly take on as a project at a church, right? It's the best stuff, but it's the most difficult. Can you imagine how Timothy felt? And beyond that, Paul begins to tell Timothy in this letter, he doesn't just tell them how to, how to work with this church that's erring. He tells them how to grow personally. He tells Timothy, you train yourself for godliness. It's time to grow up, Timothy. Be an example. Don't let people despise you for your youth. And by you do that by being an example of faith and love and purity and so on. Give the people of God the truth. Command obedience to these things. What a weighty, weighty charge Timothy had on his shoulder. And Timothy didn't know exactly when Paul would arrive. You know, he, that, that must have been a little bit his relief valve. He's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go in there, Paul, but you hurry and come, and you, as soon as you're here, you're going to take over. Paul would arrive, yes, and exercise his apostolic authority and influence to speed the church reformation ahead. Paul told Timothy he would come as soon as he could. And that would certainly provide that relief for Timothy, but you can see here, until I come, Timothy, you do this. And, and he didn't know when he was going to come. Paul writes there in, in, in chapter 3, 14 and 15, I'm writing these things because if I'm delayed, you will know what to do in my place. So what was Timothy to do then in order to accomplish all these tasks assigned to him? What was the main thing to be done? What was he to be doing for that indefinite amount of time? Whenever Paul would arrive. And verse 13 answers that question. It gives the, really the sum and substance of all biblical ministry and discipleship. When any good servant of Christ Jesus asks, what am I supposed to be doing in the church until Christ comes? 
What, what am I supposed to be doing? This verse answers that question. If you've ever asked yourself, why do we do what we do when we come together as a church? Why do we, why do we arrange the room like this? Why do we spend time in the Word of God like this? Why do we read publicly? Why do we sing? Why do we, why? This is one of those definitive texts that tells us clearly what we are to do when we gather for worship. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to something. Devote yourself to this. Until I come, devote yourself. What does that mean? Devote. It, to turn your mind to this. To apply yourself to this, Timothy. To turn your whole attention, your, the focus of your life on this continually. Paul was calling Timothy to give himself to biblical ministry. Not just the public delivery of it, but the private preparation for it. So that his divinely enabled efforts and energy for ministry would be completely focused on what he is about to delineate for him. This devotion that Paul is talking about here isn't, isn't just checking off the boxes of duty when we gather. It's a whole life focus for Timothy and the good servant of Christ. This is what you're committing yourself to. And those words, until I come, Devote yourself. Those words ring with absolute necessity, with total commitment, with a relentless focus, with undying dedication. Until I come, devote yourself. What is Timothy to devote himself to? Well, there's three things here, right? The public reading of Scripture, that's one. Exhortation, two. The teaching. There's the three aspects of biblical ministry. Let's look at each one of these and see what they are. The reading. The public reading of Scripture. It's actually one word in, in the original language. It's got an article before it. The reading is what it literally is. The reading. And the reading, letter A there in your outline, has a rich biblical history. This is not something that, that Paul invented right here in this text. It's, some, it's not something that was invented during the Protestant Reformation. Something, not something we thought of in the last you know, hundred years as churches start to grow all over the United States. No, this is ancient. The reading. This is referring to something very specific and familiar that has always been the center of ministry when the people of God gather. This holy practice began in the Old Testament during the assembled worship of the Israelites and has continued through the New Testament to this present day in the gathering of Christians for worship. The reading. It began the temple, the synagogue, and, and, and was continued in the meeting place of the church. I want you to turn to some passages with me. Will you look at Nehemiah? After the book of Ezra. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. It says, and they, and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That, that entire verse describes what is known as the reading the public reading of Scripture, and then the giving of the sense of it. Look at Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. You see that same, the same pattern over here in Luke chapter 4. There's the reading. They give the sense so that the people understand. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he what? Stood up to read. That's the reading. Stood up to read. And the scroll 
of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is, this is an Old Testament practice that carried on its way through the New Testament. The man would stand up, Jesus in this case, Ezra in another case, would stand up, read the scriptures, read publicly a carefully selected text and sit down and then explain it, give the sense that the people would understand. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. Verses 15 and 16. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. You have the same practice talked about there. Acts 15. There's another one, Acts 15:21. For from every or for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then let me just mention to you a couple of more passages. 1 Thessalonians 5:27 brings that Old Testament practice over into the New Testament church. Where Paul tells the church there in Thessalonica, make sure this letter, the one I'm sending to you, is read in the churches. And then again, the Apostle Paul says, Colossians 3, verse 16, make sure this letter is read, not just here in Colossae, but in Laodicea, make sure these letters are read when the people of God gather. And so what you see here as redemptive history unfolds is that the apostles not only employed the Old Testament writings in the reading, the reading, but they began to include the Spirit-inspired writings of the apostles as well. And so the church continues to do so to this day. So the reading... What Paul is talking about here, this first part here, the public reading of Scripture, the the public reading is that the people would stand and publicly read the text, and then they would give a literal, normal explanation of that text by exposing the author's meaning, and that would often happen as everyone sits down. So that's not much different than what we do today, right? That's what we call exposition. We publicly read a passage of Scripture, we sit down and we explain it. So Paul says to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to that. But not just to the public reading of Scripture, because Timothy goes on and he says, number two, to exhortation. So letter B in your outline. The reading, but also the exhortation. Now, now if the reading informs the intellect, exhortation, then confronts the heart. This is something different than the simple explanation that is historically part of the reading. Exhortation takes the reading one step farther. The word exhortation actually includes a few activities, each of which are directed in power toward the human heart, toward the conscience, toward the will. This word means to call someone to come near. And you could imagine how that would fit in this case. Come near to the words. Look at the words of the Scripture. And then to entreat someone, to admonish them, to encourage them, or to console or comfort or refresh them according to their need as the reading demands. So exhortation is taking the meaning of the reading 
and implicating it to the hearers so that the truth that is discovered in the reading is then applied to the heart and decisive change is affected. So for example, if someone is willfully ignorant, we take the Word and we explain it and then we confront. That would be exhortation. The fitting exhortation would be to confront the willfully ignorant. Or someone who is walking in disobedience would need to be convicted of their sin and, and, and the, the end of their ways would need to be brought to bear upon their conscience. If someone is unbelieving, they would need to be convinced of the truth. If someone is living in foolishness, they would need to be counseled. If someone is fearful, they would need to be comforted. If someone is discouraged, they need to be consoled. So exhortation has all those sorts of meanings and activities built into it, depending on the person's need. Comfort, consolation, counsel, convincing, conviction, confrontation, whatever is the need. God's Word and Spirit do all of those things as the reading is applied in power and divine authority. This is what God has ordained for as, as a tool of change and spiritual progress in the life of His chosen people. Can you see why the preaching event is a divine event? See, we didn't make this up. We're just following the orders. This is how people are to change. It's not just that the Word is to get in their minds and inform their intellect. It's to move beyond that and to change them in their hearts. We cannot only inform the intellect with the truth of God's Word. That's not enough. The implications of that truth must be driven into the heart. That's the goal of exhortation. The goal of exhortation is to strive to be used by God to move the hearts of men and women by the power of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would decide something. By God's grace, that they would decide to no longer live in sin, or no longer remain in unbelief, or, or no longer uh, willingly succumb to fear and weakness and discouragement because their heart has now been confronted by the strong conviction and, and convincing and comfort of the Scriptures. And consequently, they're changed. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts. When believers assemble together under the ministry of the Word, it's really not enough to say, yeah, I get it. I understand that. It's not enough. We're to say, I, I will repent of this. I will trust. I will obey. I believe. I will take heart. And I, by God's grace, will be different. That's the goal of exhortation. It's not just information, it's, it's heart confrontation, it's transformation. And every true spiritual awakening or reformation of doctrine and practice among God's chosen people in redemptive history has been affected by such a biblical ministry. That's, that's why Paul is talking to this. His goal is reformation for the Ephesian church. And he says to Timothy, then you go and you, you do public reading of Scripture, you exhort, you teach. That's God's appointed method. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You see what God is doing in the world? This is, this is, this is one of His tools. And this is why... Christ has designed this biblical ministry. Exhortation is essential to biblical ministry. And then that's why Paul told Timothy, until I come, you devote yourself. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation. And thirdly, this morning, to teaching. Let us see in your outline. Teaching moves beyond the intellect and even beyond the heart to the conduct. Teaching. This is the third piece in this triad of biblical ministry that Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to. Teaching means to give instruction in doctrine or, or practice. And particularly in this context, teaching gives principles and precepts so that truth may become useful. It may become useful for life and applied to that daily conduct. 
It's important for the intellect to be informed. That happens through reading. It's important for the mind to be changed, but then it's just as important for the conduct to be changed by Scriptures through the teaching. Teaching takes the truths of Scriptures and systematizes it so you can remember it in everyday life. It takes the truths of Scripture and principalizes them so that they can be applied readily in daily life. We need more than information and exhortation. We need instruction. We need someone to help us. We've all experienced this where you know the books of the Bible, you know the content of the Bible, but then you come to a life situation where you're like, I don't know how to navigate this. That's when teaching comes in. And we've all made that phone call. We've all, we've all set up that lunch, lunch date. And we said, all right, I've got this problem, you know, in my marriage, in my parenting, in, you know, whatever, in my life where I need help with this. Will you teach me how to do this in everyday life? That's what teaching does. It takes the, it takes the information, okay? It takes the, the exhortation and then it translates it into everyday life. That's the heart of biblical ministry. Elders, this is our pattern for preaching. The reading, the exhortation, the teaching. This text should shape every sermon. Now I've just held the bar really high for myself. And as I was studying, I'm like, I don't do this all the time. No wonder it takes me so long. There's a lot to do here. This text should truly shape every sermon. This this may be one of the clearest directives right from the Word of God on what a sermon should be. Here's the three points of a sermon. Explain it. Exhort. Teach. You can build your preaching ministry on this verse. And if you desire the office of an elder, then I exhort you this morning to devote yourself to this. This is a model also for discipleship, dear ones. Whether you're a teacher, a parent, a a study leader, you who are discipling someone one-on-one, week by week, let this be your model as well. Not not that you're going to develop a full-scale sermon. That would be a little awkward sitting across the table from someone in McDonald's. But but when when you're doing this with someone, these are the principles that can guide you. Read the Scriptures and explain it. Then take the truth of Scripture and exhort to the heart. You, that's the goal of counseling is, and all discipleship is to see our heart changed, our desires, our affection, and then show them, teach them how to live that out in everyday life. Real life practical example. Inform the intellect. Confront or comfort the heart and apply it daily. Apply it to daily life through doctrine and principle. And this, this threefold ministry really ought to, ought to permeate every aspect of our local church. This, this could be needed out everywhere in the body. Anywhere, anytime, on any level. Think about it, even in the nursery. That's why we, we have in the nursery time big picture story Bibles, right? We've got, and we've got the ladies set up to, to help the kids memorize verses. Well, well, what do they say when they get there? They, they tell them the Bible story, and they say, well, you know what this means? They're doing the reading, right? On, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an infant level, right? And then and they say things like, you know what? Jesus can be your Savior. And they're working at heart change. Helping them to see that they can trust. And you know what? When Jesus is your Savior, you can learn to obey your mom and dad. Right? Now there's teaching happening. Right? This, this can permeate everything we do. When training men and women for ministry, whether it's technology ministry or ushering ministry or nursery ministry or hospitality or music or facilities, I mean, you name it, the bringing on of new people into those ministries and the equipping of them for the ministry ought to come from the Word of God and give them the right heart and seek to give them the right heart for it and to to show them how to do it biblically. This can work its way into everything because it is biblical ministry. You give the Word, you exhort, you teach. And that's God's message for for making people godly in all that we do as His church, as His household, as the pillar and buttress of the truth. We must become or must continue to pursue becoming a church that is devoted to these things. That's what God is calling us to. 
And may that be so by God's grace. Now, there's a lot that can discourage and distract an elder, Timothy, anyone who's discipling, any member by implication of Christ's church. There's a lot that can distract someone from biblical ministry. Biblical ministry can be neglected in a local church. And, and this may have been a temptation for Timothy. And so following Paul's exhortation to Timothy to devote himself to biblical ministry, Paul also exhorts Timothy by saying, do not neglect the gift you have. Because verse 13, biblical ministry always will require biblical gifting. Right? Spiritual gifting. Let's talk about that today. Number two, do not neglect your spiritual gift. Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Letter A in your outline, the nature of spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? That's something that we talk about, but... Maybe there's a lot of folks in the body of Christ that really don't know what that is. What is a spiritual gift? The gift you have, Paul tells Timothy. This gift is a gift of divine grace given by God to a believer. And that gift is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit Enabling that believer to serve the church of Christ so that God's people are edified, so that believers are evangelized, and Christ is exalted. Let me read that again. A gift, spiritual gift, a divine, a gift of divine grace given by God to a believer, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Enabling that believer to serve the church of Christ so that God's people are edified, unbelievers are evangelized, and Christ is exalted. Now there's four main texts that describe spiritual gifts in the Bible. There's, there's more than that, but four main ones that come most frequently to our minds. And I remember them, and I'll give you this memory cube, you probably already know what I'm going to say. There's two twelves and two fours. So there's Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, let me, or 4 through 11, I'm going to read this to you. What is a spiritual gift? It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let me list for you all the gifts in these passages, those four that I mentioned to you. Some of them the Holy Spirit gave specifically and uniquely for the founding era of the church. Others, the Holy Spirit is still giving today. I'm going to read them all to you. But all of the gifts accomplish the same overarching goals. Here they are. Gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. All these gifts... 1 Corinthians 12.11 says, All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. And remember what He said in the first few verses. There are varieties of gifts, right? There's a whole bunch of them, but the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts to His people. The same Lord is behind them all. And He empowers them all in everyone. Every believer in the body of Christ to each is given, to each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit for a, for a common good. 
So what we discover here is that every true believer is given a spiritual gift or gifts. Every true believer is given spiritual gift or gifts. Spiritual gifts are chosen and given by the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gifts are accompanied by the power of God to use those gifts. The spiritual gifts are given for the common good of the church of Christ. Or in other words, to accomplish the overarching purposes of Christ for His church, which are to see God's chosen people evangelized, born again, and added to the church. Or to see the the members of the body of Christ edified and transformed into the image of Christ, which is the goal of salvation. To see the members of the body equipped, trained, to minister to one another and to preach the Gospel to the world around them and to see Christ exalted and the Father glorified. That's the common good that the gifts accomplish. Ultimately, the mission of the church is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Right, Go into all the world, preach the Gospel to every creature, baptizing them and so on. And And that mission is accomplished by Christ through His people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as they exercise their spiritual gifts. God has chosen to accomplish His purpose in the world through the church as they exercise their spiritual gifts given to them by Christ and enabled in them by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to emphasize human ability and responsibility to the neglect of divine sovereignty in the mission of the church. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to emphasize what is emphasized in these these Scriptures. I'm not trying to say that the goal of the Great Commission or the success of the mission of the church is contingent upon what we do. I'll never say something like that. Lord willing. I'm saying that God has ordained certain means by which His saving purposes in the world will be accomplished. We know that. God's mission in the church is going to be accomplished. And that brings us great joy. right? Christ did not die in vain. He will receive the reward of His suffering. Whether you and I are involved or not, it's going to happen. But God has ordained certain means by which His saving purposes in the world will be accomplished. And central to those means is the exercise of the spiritual gifts given and empowered by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus promised to the apostles in the upper room. Listen to this. John 14, 12-14. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to My Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. A lot of people get stuck on the healing miracles of Jesus during the first century founding of the church. But this verse speaks to the life of the body of Christ today where Jesus promised that there would be many, many people filled with the Spirit and empowered by spirit, with spiritual gifts so they could go out just like Jesus and preach the Gospel to the whole world. And Jesus said, if you ask anything in My name as, as this mission is being carried out, I'll do it. That's what He's talking about. It's something bigger than, 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 than what a lot of people think of for that text. So, do you see how important it is then to know your spiritual gifts and not neglect them? I think we really underestimate and, and, and really neglect the whole concept of each individual believer and their gift and the Spirit empowering them in the life of the body of Christ. Timothy's gifts appear to be gifts of teaching and exhortation and leading. And that's why Paul sent him to, to the church in Ephesus for this work. It seems to be that's what it is. But let me ask you. What are your spiritual gifts? What is your spiritual gift? If you are a believer, you have one or more. Do you know what it is? And are you exercising it in the body of Christ? Have you prayerfully labored? Have you made this a focus of prayer? Have you prayerfully labored to know what they are 
so that you can exercise them and not neglect them. Look what, look what Paul tells Timothy. Do not neglect the gift you have. Paul reminds Timothy not only that he has a gift, but then also that he reminds him how his gift was given and how he came to know what it, what it was. Let her, let her be in your outline at number two. You can see the giving of the gift. The giving of spiritual gifts. Paul says, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There are two phrases here that describe the giving of Timothy's gifts. By prophecy, and, and there's this laying of hands by the elders. Paul writes that Timothy's gift was given by prophecy. That indicates that the Holy Spirit gave Timothy his gift and revealed Timothy's gift through a direct prophetic word from God. And that refers us back to chapter 1, verse 18, which says this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. What charge? The charge of going to the church in Ephesus and correcting it. So I entrust this charge to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So Paul is saying to Timothy, remember this. That's why I sent you to Timothy, or sent you to Ephesus, Timothy. God gave you the gift. God told us your gift through prophecy. Now go exercise your gift by His power and according to His will. That was the giving, the revealing, the calling, and the appointing of Timothy for service according to his gift. Now, this is not the only time something like this has happened in the early church. You see this sort of thing happened in Acts chapter 13, 1-3. I'll read it to you. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see, that's the same, same thing. Holy Spirit gives a prophetic word. Set Barnabas and Saul aside. This is their gift. This is their appointment. Let them go. And that's the same intent what we see in verse 14 with Timothy. The church recognized and affirmed what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through these men. And so you have not only this prophetic word, but then just like in Acts 13, just like here, 1 Timothy 4.14, the council of elders laid their hands on Timothy. That's the second part of Timothy's giving of the gift and and his, his, the affirmation of his gift. Paul is reminding Timothy that a godly, qualified council of men appointed by the Holy Spirit to lead his church, it is they who recognized what God was doing in Timothy and they wholeheartedly and prayerfully affirmed it. That is a blessing. It's not a good thing when someone says, I have this gift and nobody else seems to recognize I have this gift and I'm just going to exercise it because I like to exercise it. What the way it needs to happen is that the body of Christ affirms. They see the parts that God and Spirit has given to them and, and they're blessed by them and they're edified by them. Paul wanted Timothy to be greatly encouraged by this reminder so that he would take courage in knowing that the Spirit of God had gifted him and revealed that gift to him and called him and appointed him and empowered him and, and, and the men of God representing the church of God had affirmed him and prayed over him and sent him to fulfill this very charge in the church in Ephesus. That's an important reminder for Timothy here. And so Paul says on that basis, don't neglect the gift you have. At this time in the New Testament church, it, it, it isn't meaning this time, this current era, it's not normative for the Holy Spirit to give a prophetic word, giving and revealing gifts to each of us. So how should we then understand the giving of our gifts today? Well, your gifts are given upon conversion. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, remember, to each 
to each who? Those who confess that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is the context. You confess Jesus as Lord, it says, by the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit is then the one who gives gifts to each. And God reveals your gifts through His Word. We have them written down for us. And He also reveals them through His providence, meaning these texts will will reveal what the gifts are that the Spirit gives, and then the Holy Spirit puts desires in your heart and enables abilities in your life and also provides opportunities and opens your eyes to those opportunities because your desires are fixed. Opportunities within your local church. So your gifts are given upon conversion. God reveals your gifts through His Word and His providence. And then thirdly, your gifts are recognized, affirmed, used, and enjoyed by the people of your local church. And it begins a snowball effect of edification and joy. And as a result, people are edified. People are equipped. People are glad. They're exulting in what God is doing. There's evangelism happening. Christ is exalted in the body of believers. The New Testament texts describe gifts and texts like 1 Timothy 4.14 and and many others describe this this process like this as well. So again, I want to ask you, what are your gifts or gift? Have you prayerfully labored to know what they are so that you can exercise them and not neglect them? That is God's will for you. If you are His, if you are a believer, It is God's will for you to know and exercise your spiritual gifts in the body. It is is vital to the evangelization of the lost in our community, to the edification and equipping of of our people, to our joy, to the glory of Christ. And so Paul told Timothy, don't neglect your gift. Now last point for this morning. Let us see the, the, the neglect of spiritual gifts. What does that mean then? Paul says to Timothy, let's conclude with this thought. Do not neglect the gift you have. What does it mean? How does one do that? Well, the simple definition of do not neglect means to be careless of something. Don't be careless about it. Don't make light of it. Make sure you do not disregard And this command seems to indicate that Timothy may have been thinking about neglecting his gift or had already begun to neglect his gift in some way. It's it's, it's a lot like, Timothy, stop neglecting your gift. We get a sense of this also in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 and 7. Turn there for a minute. 2 Timothy 1. 6 and 7. I want you to see these verses on your page. Paul tells Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hand. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see what Paul is doing? Paul is stirring Timothy's heart to not neglect his spiritual gift. Maybe he was afraid to exercise. That's that's the, the sense we get from those verses. Maybe he was afraid to exercise his spiritual gifts in Ephesus because of the hostility and the shame that would likely result. Remember, he was going into this church and he had a big charge to fulfill. And if he exercises his gift, he knows what's coming back at him. He felt fearful. So Paul then continues in that text and he says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the, by the power of the gospel, or by the gospel, suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which, I, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard against that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul tells Timothy, fan your gift into flame. It was a flickering pilot light, and Timothy was about to let it go out, and so Paul exhorts him, fan it into flame. Remember how you were given your gift, and remember why you were given your gift. And in that Godward confidence, exercise your gift and work on it and develop it and pray over it and look for opportunities to use it. And do what God has called and gifted and enabled you to do. But don't fear because to neglect your gift, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Is that something? And you know what? That's not just true for Timothy. That is true for Timothy. And we see what his gift was. That's true for every believer. Have you been neglecting your gift? Why? Is it because of a lack of knowledge? Some people don't know what their gift is. They've never explored it. They've never pursued it. Maybe they never learned about it. That's why God gives us His Word in the body of Christ. Maybe yours is a little flickering flame and you need to blow on it and get it to come into a big fire. And the body of Christ can help you with that. The Spirit of God will do that in your life. Is it because of fear? A lot of people are afraid to exercise their spiritual gifts before others for various reasons. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and love, self-discipline. Maybe it's a lack of love. Sometimes that does it. You don't love the people of God the way you ought to. Well, that's the work of the Spirit in you as well. And so, for love of the people of God, that motivates you to, to fan your gift in the flame because they need your gift to become who God has called them to be. That's part of God's purpose and and ordained means. The people around you need you to exercise your gift so that they can become who God has called them to be. Maybe it's a lack of self-control or self-discipline. Maybe your focus is distracted on so many things that you haven't focused your attention on these most important things. Don't neglect your gift. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God will meet all of those challenges in your life and will conquer them for the good of the church and the glory of Christ and your joy. There's nothing more satisfying and joyful than to exercise your gift in the body of Christ and for the glory of Christ in the church of Christ. Dear ones, don't neglect your gift. Fan it in the flame. That means gifts need to be developed. Right? Fan it into flame. They need to be developed. They're not, as soon as you get it, it's not going to be like full blown and the best it can ever be, right? No. It needs to be fanned into flame. It needs to be developed and nurtured and honed and encouraged. Let the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God right here in our local church, beginning with our leadership even, help you to know what your spiritual gift is, gifts are, and how to use and develop them. Prayerfully pursue fanning your spiritual gift into flame. This is truly important, not only for elders, not only for deacons, but every believer. This is a vital piece for the growth of the body and the proclamation of the Gospel. I'm convinced of that from this text. Are you? By the grace of God, let's diligently pursue becoming good servants of Christ Jesus by devoting ourselves to biblical ministry and not neglecting our spiritual gift. Let me close in this way. If you are my brother or sister in Christ, believers who know know that your sin is forgiven, know that you have the Spirit of God living in you, I want to give you something to take home today and bring back next week. Would you look in your bulletin? I gave you two sheets. There's a half sheet behind the notes. And maybe this will help us to get the ball rolling a little bit and and be one way of immediately applying the things that we've learned today. 
a little sheet. Spiritual gifts, 1 Timothy 1.6. The texts to consider as you think about those gifts. And I'm going to ask you to place a check mark by the number of the phrase that best describes you and fill out the, the appropriate blanks next to that or below it if, if it's applicable. There's, there's probably three options here. I know my gift, gifts, and I am exercising them by God's grace. Would you write them down and tell how you're exercising them? Second, I know my gifts. I don't think I'm exercising them, but I would like to learn how. I can. And then third, I don't know my gifts, but I would like to learn what they are so that I can exercise them. Would you put a check by one of those this week? Don't do it now. Just think through it. Pray over it. And then I have a fourth one for the men to consider. I want to ask you to, to think about this prayerfully, men. If you are a man in this church and you have a desire to be an elder or deacon as the Lord would allow you, and you would like to be equipped to effectively communicate the Word of God, would you put a check by that and again, turn it in next week? And everyone who fills out one of these, please put your name. And there's a little box in the foyer on the end of the end of the, the table there, and you can drop it in next week. Would you do this with me? And I'm not promising that I'll just immediately start making all this happen, because I can't. It's the work of the Spirit of God, right? But I want to pray for you, and I want to think about these things and pray over them and, and, and encourage you to do the same. This is important for us, and may the Lord enable us to this. Secondly, before we pray, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, that means you don't know your sins are forgiven. You're not sure of that. You don't know that heaven will be your place of eternal rest. Do you know that? If you don't know that, I want to say something to you this morning with a heart of love. You are missing out on the joy of what it means to be part of the family of God. To be part of Christ's redemptive mission. To be given a gift of the Spirit and used by Christ as a tool to, to proclaim His Gospel. And you know what? You, if you do not know Christ, then you are continuing to live your life in sin and disobedience to Christ. And that, that, is a, that is an empty life. That is a futile existence. And it will end in the eternal wrath of God. But the life of a forgiven sinner who has turned from sin and self to Christ alone, it's a life of increasing joy and, and purpose and fulfillment, especially when, when Christ, the risen Lord, returns. I want to tell you this morning what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. Listen carefully. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Make God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been made into a new creature through the Holy Spirit? This is Paul's appeal to you. This is my appeal to you. Christ has provided all the saving provisions that are necessary for you to be reconciled to God. Trust in Christ. Turn from self-righteousness, from sin, 
and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you too can become an ambassador for God and call others to be reconciled to God. That's my prayer for you today. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that You would stir us in our hearts, help enable us to fan our gift into flame. Each one of us in the body of Christ. May we pursue relentlessly biblical ministry and the exercise of our gifts Father, this is who we are. This is why we are here. Everything else in this life is secondary to what you have called us to be as the pillar and buttress of the truth, as as your children in Christ and proclaimers of the gospel. Everything else in life is just a means to accomplishing those ends. We pray that you would help us to see that. May we be obedient to the Scriptures. Thank you that the risen Christ is our hope. The living God is our hope for accomplishing these things. It is so comforting, Father, to know that the Son, the exalted Lord, is sitting, reigning, interceding for us, and directing the progress of His church through the Spirit, and nothing can thwart Him. But His command, His will, will be done. And we pray for that. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. And so we long for the day when He will return and reveal and unfold and totally fulfill every, every promise. And Father, I pray that You would save sinners, that they would hear the the word of reconciliation, to know that Christ became sin for us and was tortured under Your wrath and has provided to us all the righteousness we need to stand blameless before You. Please save Heavenly Father. And may it all be for Your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.